first three days are often the hardest during our retreat, the starting retreat time. And as I was sitting here in the meditation, particularly in the beginning, I was just thinking, gosh, people are so still, there's such incredible stillness in the room. It's very, very peaceful, very cohesive, quite quickly. And then as, as I was sitting, I was thinking, I wonder what's going on inside. <laughs> <laughs> And I was thinking about in a monastery, you know, people come to stay in the monastery and they say, oh, it's so wonderful, it's so peaceful, so, I feel so much peace when I come here. And then when you live in a monastery, you're running around, doing lots of things, working with difficult relationships, and, you know, it doesn't feel, quite often it doesn't feel at all peaceful. But when people come, they go, oh, it just feels so great here. And I think that's, that's kind of how it is on a retreat, you know. Anyone coming into this room would feel, wow, look at these people sitting here with such grace and stillness and so inspiring. It's beautiful. And then inside we're doing all that work to, to uh, enable ourselves to stay still in the room. So I imagine by now everyone's become a little bit acquainted with their five hindrances, even though we haven't <coughs> spoken about them yet. So the, the Buddha, with his great compassion, pointed out the five hindrances to enlightenment. So these are things that we experience probably much of the time in our, in our, wake, wake, our wake, wakeful life. And then when we come and sit on the cushion, then uh, they can loom up quite large in our minds. So. The hindrances are of uh, sensual desire. So this is something in our ordinary life, it's, it's pretty much encouraged actually to follow sensual desire. The, the culture, our, our culture really encourages sensual desire, sees that as a good thing. You know, get more, be more beautiful, have more, then you'll be happy. And if you just follow sensual desire, that will lead you to happiness. This is the the, uh, the myth, and it does lead to temporary happiness. It can get it can get a little bit of happiness, otherwise we wouldn't still be following it. So there is gratification to be gained from following sensual desire for a little while, and then it changes, and then we're left with that sense of lack again. And that until the mind starts to go out again, look for something beautiful, something, something uh, delicious, or something attractive that can fill us and make us feel 
gratified again. And then we can get that for a while, feel gratified for a while until it changes. And on that process goes, it just endlessly continues, following the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So, you know, in a retreat, there's very little opportunity to fulfill sense of desire. <laughs> Especially when the heating seems to have gone down. You've then managed to come into a warm room to meditate. And the, the food is, you know, it's good food, but it's only in the morning, so you don't get to indulge in wonderful meals in the afternoon or evening. And uh, we're all keeping celibacy. And well, there is a certain beauty to this space, but sitting here for several hours a day maybe kind of wears off after a while. There's not a lot of stimulation, so the mind starts looking for something else. Sitting in meditation, start fantasizing about some other lovely place you could be about that retreat in Hawaii. <laughs> or about um, that wonderful cake or uh, a good restaurant that you know or, or a love affair uh, the mind goes to all these places because it's much, it's much more pleasant than sitting with a slightly painful body in a room that's not very warm with lots of other people so you know, this is what happens, the mind starts to look for something to, to give it a sense of gratification. But the Buddha pointed to this as a hindrance to enlightenment. So, you know, here we go, here we, we're here on this retreat to end the year and see the new year. And uh, there's a certain edge of austerity to it. It's a monastic retreat, so it's got a little kind of edge of austerity. Hopefully not too much. So this has, been the, this has been a conscious choice of everyone who's here. And yet, you know, there's probably been quite a lot of effort to actually get here and arrange one's life so that one can come here and um, traveling and packing and all of these things. And then here we are, and then the mind just wants to go somewhere else. So, you know, while we let, when we let the mind do this, you know, it seems kind of harmless enough. Oh, it doesn't matter, you know, you're not going to do any harm, just just have this fantasy during this half hour, 45 minutes meditation. It doesn't hurt anyone, you know. But this is uh, taking our mind away from what's actually real, what's happening here and now. And, you know, when we stay on the kind of surface of things, what's happening here and now might seem a bit kind of dry and, and a bit uh, difficult to be with. You know, the breath is kind of boring and the body is a bit uncomfortable. You know, the, the mind is kind of not really settled. So we stay in this kind of restless and unfocused state. And we miss the, um, the real beauty of this moment. So our mind turns to other beauties, and we miss the, the real beauty of the mind in this moment, the illuminated mind in this moment. So the Buddha is, you know, he knows, he's living in, he was dwelling all the time in the awakened mind, a mind that was bright, liberated, released, 
free, compassionate, wise. And he was dwelling with that, with that mind all the time. And he recognized that you know, we also have the potential to dwell in that same state because that state is the natural state. It's what what's there before all of the veils of confusion and illusion uh, are drawn over it. So, you know, even though our little fantasies might seem harmless enough and maybe in a much more, on a, on a superficial level, more pleasant than being with the, the very simple object of the breath or the rather gross object of the body, when we, when we do that, when we move our mind to sensual desire, we miss the opportunity of, of seeing, of being what is truly beautiful. So the awakened mind. So when I say this, don't think that I'm, you know, that this isn't something attainable to you. So better just stay in the fantasy realm, <laughs> because it's here. It's what is revealed when the when the hindrances fall away. So there's the hindrance of sensual desire, the hindrance of ill will. So a few people have declared themselves as aversives already on this retreat to me. So, you know, aversive minds that, that tend to dwell in ill will. And ill will is a, is a kind of resentment, actually. There's a certain kind of resentment and resistance to life as it is. It's kind of pushing away, keeping away things as they are. So you develop this relationship of aversion with things as they are. It can be anger, it can be just a kind of grumbling or a kind of greyness of mind, resentment. So this again, this is a, a hindrance to enlightenment. It's, it's, it's pushing away, trying to keep away, push away, reject things as they are. So in, in that mind state there's a kind of contraction, a sense of separate self quite strongly, and uh, resistance. So you might be familiar with that, I don't know. So this also is a, you know, it's, it's hindering us, it's getting in the way of us seeing clearly the way things are. And then there's restlessness, restlessness and anxiety. This is a, like an agitated quality. And it's actually one of the very last things to go, restlessness, on a, on a subtle level. For an enlightened one, one of the, it's one of the last fetters. Restlessness is one of the very last fetters. So, you know, we're, we're going to be experiencing some degree of restlessness. But, uh, you know, we can, we can experience quite strong restless agitation, the body just can't settle, keep moving, or there's a sense of, of anxiety, worry, fear even going on in the heart. So this is also one of the hindrances to enlightenment. So as long as we're caught up in that, in that worry and flurry, as it's been translated in one of the sutras, as long as we're caught up in that, then we're, we can't see <coughs> then we're obscured from seeing the way things are. 
and then sloth and torpor, which uh, a lot of us have been experiencing, a lot of nodding, a lot of reverence. <laughs> it was very strong, at first, especially in the first few days of the retreat, uh, going from being in a busy life and uh, a lot of stimulation perhaps, to sitting and doing nothing but watch the breath. You know, it's very, the, the mind can't make that shift quicker, you know, very easily, so it's just like, oh, just can't stay with it. Maybe boredom is a form of sloth and, sloth and torpor. Drowsiness, sleepiness, completely being unconscious. <laughs> These are all uh, aspects of, of sloth and, and torpor, sloth and drowsiness. So you know, it's kind of an unpleasant state. And we're sitting up here, you can all see us. We're sitting up here doing it. <laughs> so it's kind of an unpleasant thing, you know, you're kind of trying to stay awake, you can't quite. Uh, and maybe you, know, you, can, you can kind of, you're aware of what's going on, but you can't quite stay present enough to, to keep your body upright. And so, you know, when you're being with that experience, you can, you can feel it. It's, it's, not, it's not a pleasant state, it's not something we really want to stay in, what it wants to be in. Just to remember that this is a, one of the hindrances to enlightenment. And then there's doubt. This can, this can come up in, t- in terms of the meditation practice. I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. Did she mean that? Should I start with this one? Actually, there was a question I could even answer it now. There's a question about the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, should I, should we do one first uh, and then another one, or should we do them all at once? Which it's not possible actually to do them all at once. Uh, or which one should we do first? So, you know, this is doubt. The mind doesn't know what to do. It has instruction, but it isn't quite sure how to actually apply that. So then it gets starts to spin in doubt. Should I do this or should I do that? So the four foundations of mindfulness, it's a, it's a kind of graduated path and uh, it's very good to start with the body and, and the breath is, is part of body, the foundation of the body, so you can start with mindfulness of breathing if you're in doubt. Start with mindfulness of breathing and body awareness and then you can move on. We haven't actually gone in any detail through the, through the other three yet. So. Just to start with mindfulness of breathing. And I would recommend, if you're in doubt at any time, I think I said it already, if ever you're in doubt about what meditation practice you should do, then just come to mindfulness of breathing. And let your mind just stay really focused with that, present with that. So doubt you know, it has the quality of, it has the illusion of, it gives you the impression that if you just keep doubting long enough, you just keep mulling over that doubt long enough, that you're going to come up with the answer. It really kind of feels like that, but generally doubt is just taking you round and round in circles. It's like a dog chasing its tail. And the faster it goes, the harder it tries, the faster it goes. It doesn't, it never gets any closer to the tail. It's kind of like that. So the thing with doubt is just to, just to stop and choose something and do it and see what happens. Because we can't uh, know the outcome of the choices of our life until we do them. So we have to just stop and make a decision and stay with that and try it out and see what happens. And if it was a wrong decision, then try something else. And if you, you know, in terms of the practice, if you can ask a teacher, then you can ask. This is a good thing. But then, 
there can be also life choices. I know some people have come here with you know, bigger decisions to make. Uh, they may be sitting, mulling over, well, should I do this or should I do that? Should I really be here? Mm, you know, maybe I shouldn't. And so just be here fully for this time. Be here fully and allow your mind to drop deeper, move away from that constant churning of the, of the thinking mind of doubt. And allow your mind to drop, because when you can drop down and come more into contact with your natural intuition, then often answers just reveal themselves quite, quite naturally. But when we're caught up in that thinking realm of doubt, it's very difficult to get any clarity. So all of these are hindrances to enlightenment. And it's important to notice that the Buddha didn't say, if you're experiencing any of these qualities, you're a bad person. Never said that. Or you're a hopeless case. <laughs> Definitely didn't say that. So, so these, are, these are hindrances of the mind. And they're, they're impermanent, they're temporary. And beneath them is the clear mind, the bright mind, the awakened mind beneath those hindrances. So, so, so you know, just to notice how we attach and, and identify with, with the mind states that arise. We take it as me and mine and, and permanent and um, you know, we create a whole self and scenario through these temporary mind states that arise. And it's true we might have a tendency towards one or another most of us do, or two or three maybe. But uh, these are just temporary mind states. And there's a certain, there can be a certain groove that's, you know, if the mind's gone down doubt many times, then it might be kind of easy to go into doubt. Or if the mind has a tendency to easily go into fantasy, then sensual desire you know, will, will more easily kind of take hold of the mind. But they are just passing mind states, they're not who what we are. And they're hindrances to enlightenment in the way that a, a cloud is hindering us from seeing the sun when it's covering the sun. I remember the first time I ever went in an aeroplane, I think I was a teenager. I hadn't been in a plane before and, and I was living in Wales, in, in, in the UK, it's kind of cloudy a lot there, a lot of time. A lot of rain, a lot of cloud, you kind of get used to it. And going this aeroplane and, and flying up on a, on a grey, cloudy day, maybe raining, and just seeing how little it took to get to the other side of those clouds. On the other side of the clouds, the sun was shining. It's a beautiful day. It's lovely. <coughs> and yet, the experience of being under those clouds was, was completely, you know, it, it, that felt like everything. It felt like it's, it's, it, is, it is raining, it's grey, it's. And then I could feel that influences the mind, you know. It does, you don't feel very happy because it's, it's a bit of uh, damper on things. It didn't take very much just to get above those clouds and then there's the sunshine. No, no obstacles. So the hindrances are like that. They're just like clouds. And not very far away there's this brightness of mind. When we practice meditation, you know, if, we, if we concentrate the mind, the hindrances can fall away for some time. 
So through the practice of jhana, for example, through concentration practice, there will be a temporary suppression of the hindrances. So you can experience the brightness, clarity of mind, which is not obscured by these hindrances. And when the mind is, is bright and clear in that way, you kind of wonder why you were ever interested in them in the first place. It seems so petty or gross or, you know, compared to the, the bright mind, it seems so unnecessary. But uh, we all have, you know, we've all made karma in, in our lives, and so that has its own momentum. And uh, even though we can see, you know, we can have times when the hindrances drop away, it can be in, in meditation, it can also be in a, a situation maybe going out into a, a beautiful landscape, and then just all of those hindrances of mind drop away, and there's just this sense of being with the beauty of the landscape, being one with. And it can be with very inspiring music also. That it's just a sense of like everything falls away and there's not grasping, there's not pushing away. There's just a sense of being open. So it can happen in, in different situations. Our karma, so the habits of mind, even though we can experience for, for periods of time the, the falling away of the hindrances, and habits of mind are strong, and so they come back. They come out of your meditation and then immediately feel irritated with the person next to you because they step on your cushion or something as they're going out the door. You know, there's little things that happen. In fact, with concentration practice, I notice often, many, many times, people can get more irritable when they practice concentration. Because there's a, you know, because you experience the refineness of mind, you experience these refined states, and then coming back into this kind of coarse realm with people who aren't necessarily tuned in perfectly to how you like it, you, uh, you know, it starts to feel really irritating, agitating. So it can actually, you know, very quickly, the hindrances come in before you've even noticed that they're back. So the Buddha also gave. Um, skillful means to, to, to counteract the hindrances. The food for sense or desire is beauty, is, is, look, is attraction to beautiful things. So it could be beautiful, pleasant feelings, beautiful feelings, beautiful um, thoughts, even the intellect. Through, through any of the, the senses, actually. So suba, suba is beautiful in Pali, and asuba is the non-beautiful. So the antidote to sense of desire is to develop awareness of asuba, the, the non-beautiful. So this has many different translations, and uh, some of them, as you hear, words like revulsion, which I, I feel is not really quite what it's pointing to. But it's pointing to like seeing the truth of the, way, of the way things are. So if we're attracted to a very beautiful person, for example, somebody really attractive, and we just can't keep in mind of that person, and we start to look at, you know, what is it, so that they appear to be beautiful, beautiful hair, beautiful skin tone, beautiful physique, beautiful voice, yeah, all these things. And then we start to look at, well, what's, what makes up this beautiful person then? And there's the hair. And you can imagine, like, well, we shave ours off, so you can imagine just like, okay, maybe imagine all the hair's shaved off and it's there on the floor. 
Is it beautiful? Not really, no. It's just kind of a heap of hair. And then there's um, skin, that beautiful skin. And then, okay, kind of, if you, if you take all the skin off and put it on the floor. <laughs> Is it beautiful? Not really. And you can, you can start to, to look at, at a, a beautiful person in that way. Fingernails, lovely nails. There's a whole fashion industry around nails these days. Probably has been for a long time, but it's getting more creative. You know. And uh, so nails. Put a little heap of the ten nails on the floor. Nothing very attractive about that. So you can go through the body in that way. And it's not, it's not meant to uh, bring a sense of repulsion, but it's meant to bring a sense of balance to one who has strong sexual desire. To, to understand, well, what is this body? You know, it's made up of skin, hair, nails, blood, sinews, muscles, saliva, undigested food or half-digested food, excrement. You know, it's all part of it. It's all part of it. So it's, it's looking at the, the whole picture, bringing in the whole picture, and balancing that, that desire with the kind of fact of, of what it is, of what it's made up of. And if we do that, then there can be a, a really deep cooling of mind. And another way of, of doing this is to, is to contemplate the elements. So we, and when, we, when we have our food reflection, part of our little reflection is to say this food is, is made of the four elements just like this body. So when we think in terms of the elements, it's also very cooling. It's no longer kind of like, I want this, I don't want that, I like that, I don't like that. It's a sense of like, this is the elements, this is the four elements, which are nourishing these four elements here. You know, it's, it's coming into these four elements in order to continue and support the process of these four elements as, as they are going through this, this process. This one's going through an Ananda Bodhi process. And you are all going through your processes is to support this process. So it's another way of, of cooling the mind around sense of desire, reflecting on the four elements of earth, water, fire and air. And Ill, for ill will, there's this kind of resistant mind state, then the, the antidote to ill will is to cultivate the Brahma Viharas, the four boundless qualities which we've spoken about a little bit already. So that's uh, loving kindness, metta, Compassion, mudita, which is like altruistic joy, enjoy, having joy in other people's good fortune or success, and equanimity, sense of evenness. So when we cultivate these mind states, our, our mind gets expanded. It's not anymore all about me, which like the ill will mind. It's, it's all about me, what I like, what I don't like what I want, what I don't want. And the, the Brahma-viharas, these are opening up the mind, expanding the mind, and breaking down the sense of me and you, this and that. If with the Brahma-viharas, we're, we're meeting each other in a, in a very different way. And we can, we can actually tangibly feel it. You know, if a whole room of people start to practice metta, you know, and you start with practicing metta for yourself, and then you start to practice metta for everybody else in the room. You'll do that during the retreat. 
after a while you feel like, suddenly you start to feel lifted. You know, first you're kind of working hard, trying to practice metta, you know, it's kind of hard going, and then, and then we practice for everybody else in the room. And so it's like multiplying that practice by, what is it, 58 or something? And then you can actually feel a sense of being lifted in your practice. So it has a direct effect. We're not anymore lots of separate individuals struggling away, but we're, we're creating a field of metta within which we can support each other and be supported. So this, these are antidotes to ill will, the Brahma Vihara. The restlessness, the antidote is concentration. Restlessness and anxiety, the antidote is concentration to really focus the mind. And uh, there's a, just a little story about years ago, long, long before I was a nun, I, I used to do a lot of hitchhiking. So I just, I kind of liked that means of travel. And uh, I remember one time I was hitchhiking my way up in Wales, you know, I was in North Wales, and I got a ride with a truck driver in the days when truck drivers could stop for people. And a very nice man who had a, a, quite a simple route, very beautiful area that he used to drive in. Same, same kind of area he drove in every day, quite a local, for a local firm. We were driving along and chatting away. And we were going up this quite steep hill, it's quite hilly there. And as we were driving along, there was a car in front of us with a, with a little trailer, like a caravan on the back. And some holiday makers, no driving up the the road in front of us and we were going along. And then as we were driving, the, the trailer started to swing a little bit. And then it swung a bit more and it kept swinging more and more and more until it swung and swung and then it, it kind of jackknifed and it pulled the whole car off the road. And fortunately nobody was hurt, everyone was okay. And as we were going on, this, the, as we were driving behind this, you know, watching this going on in this truck, we couldn't do anything to stop it. The driver was saying he needs to put his foot on the accelerator. He needs to put his foot on the accelerator, he needs to pull it out of the, of the spin. And um, what the driver was doing was trying to counterbalance the, the swing of the trailer. And, and every time he counterbalanced it, the swing got greater and greater until the whole thing just went off the road. So, so that's kind of like, could be like um, with restlessness, you know, if you try to counterbalance restlessness by, you know, try. Uh, uh, try not to be restless. Uh, then you get more and more tense, more and more restless. It doesn't it doesn't help. And so the the antidote is, is concentration. That's like putting your foot on the accelerator. You stay focused. You go. You don't go this way, that way, this way, that way. You go in one line, and you you draw the mind out of that restlessness. It uh, it takes it takes effort, and it takes a certain Persistence to do that, but you'll you'll see the results because there's a lot of energy in restlessness, and that energy just needs to be directed in the right way. And uh, sloth and torpor is kind of a difficult one because it's so uh, kind of creeps up on you unnoticed. Um, one of the antidotes is to is to use the perception of light. So those of you who can see the candles when we're meditating, you can just look at the candles. It's not too far away. That's one way. And also to, to bring to mind, you know, because like, actually the, the true nature of mind is luminous. It is bright, luminous. 
So the the line of sloth and torpor, it's like it's it's kind of clouded over. It's like a, it's like a pond with algae growing on it. You know, just can't can't see clearly. So uh, posture is very helpful, getting your spine straight so that the energy can flow, and bringing a sense of like you can also bring to mind the perception of light, even if it were sitting in a dark room. Bring to mind the perception of light. So filling the mind with perception of light. So just so you can experiment with that. And we've given other guidance like standing up and so on. And one of the <laughs> recommendations is to sit on the precipice or on a, on a place where you're going if to, you, if you fall asleep, you're going to fall in, down a, a long precipice so you're not going to fall asleep. That's one, one way. I know somebody who did that. There are, I don't think there are many of those around here. But, you know, just to, it's, because the, the mind is dull, you know, it's kind of bored, it's dull, it's not really present with what's going on. So finding a way of making an edge to the mind, bring an edge back. And doubt. So we already spoke about doubt. Doubt to just make a decision. Make a decision, stick to it for a while, see what happens. Simply put. So these are the you know these are the ways of counterbalancing the hindrances, and they, these hindrances are playing out all the time, you know, all the time or much of the time in our lives. And it's just that when we stop on a retreat like this, we see them very clearly, and so they can overwhelm the mind. So the counterbalances, the hindrances, we can use at any time. And if we know that we have a tendency towards one or the other, then to really just make an effort to apply that, those, those antidotes whenever, whenever we can at any given moment. So with sloth and torpor it's very tricky because of course we can also be tired, sometimes we're tired. So this, this retreat is like started on the 26th of December and I think for a lot of people the, the days leading up to that are very busy and full and lots going on and then people arrive and they're really tired. So you know, when you're tired then, then you need to rest. But then there's a, another kind of quality which is, you know, you're not really tired, but you're just kind of a little bit drowsy. If you rest when you're tired, you'll feel refreshed. But if you rest when you've got sloth and torpor, then you'll increase the sloth and torpor. Then you'll feel, oh, I just need another little nap. And then, oh, it's three hours later, oh, I think I need another little nap. Mm. <laughs> not quite finished my little naps yet. And it just, you know, keeps going. So. <laughs> You have to kind of be honest, you know, about what's going on. So I'd just like to say again that these are hindrances, they're not permanent obstacles, and they're not who and what we are. They are clouds, clouds passing. And I'm sure we'll become very familiar with them over this retreat, and I hope we'll also have times of becoming familiar with the, with the bright mind that is beneath those hindrances. So like I say, in, in concentration we can suppress the hindrances for some time and then they'll come back again. And the, the real work is to root them out, is to keep wearing them away until the um, mind isn't obscured by them anymore. So the enlightened mind is never obscured by the hindrances. But I'd also like to say that because uh, 
they, they may well arise and they, they're, not, they're not going to go away just because we want them to go away. You know, if you have a, in a relationship of aversion to them, then they kind of stick around a bit longer. So being present with the hindrances as they are is also, it's like a fast route, it's like a fast route back. So as long as we're at odds with the way things are, we're, we're moving away from the awakened mind. And when we can come back fully into contact with things as they are, then that's like a, an open door. So being fully present with restlessness or with anxiety or with boredom or with... Uh, sense desire is difficult. You have to be very mindful to be fully present with sense desire. Might be might be better to not do that, but unless you're very skilled. But to be fully present with with any of these hindrances is is also a, a way of wearing them out. They no longer they no, they no longer have like a grip on our mind. So it doesn't mean they necessarily immediately go away because there's a certain karmic volition there. But we're not we're not caught by them. The awareness is greater than the hindrance. So is present with the hindrance that has arisen, can be with the feeling that accompanies that hindrance and is not grasping it and not pushing it away. So I always feel that the Buddha was, you know, he had great compassion and, uh, you know, he, he taught so many different kinds of people. You know. And sometimes we, we just kind of inherit the formulas and we, we can miss the, if you don't read the suttas, then we can miss the diversity and the, the great compassion, really, of the Buddha. The diversity of his teaching and the, the great compassion. So, you know, he taught all kinds of people. I was just reflecting on this earlier on. You know, he had so many different disciples, like kings and ministers and queens and untouchables in the caste system in India and with Dalits now and then as you know he had prostitutes some of his some of the most some of the enlightened nuns had been prostitutes before they became enlightened and um, a very famous mass murderer Angulimala who became enlightened and simple people weavers and potters and you know, all sorts of people. He taught all sorts of people, everyone. So his teaching is for everyone. The, the liberating teaching is for everyone. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a brilliant scholar. You don't have to be even healthy, actually. You don't have to be young. It makes no difference whatsoever what colour your skin is, or what shape your body is, or what gender your body is makes no difference at all. You know, it's, it's, for, it's for everyone. So, the enlightened mind is waiting for us to rediscover it. It's right here. It's like the sun behind the clouds. It's right here. It's waiting for us to you know, fall back into it. To, to tear away those veils of delusion and see clearly again. So don't, don't put the, the path of awakening as something so far away that you can never realize it. 
because it's very, very close. It's so close you can't even, you're overlooking it. It's so close that you're looking somewhere else, thinking it's got to be somewhere else. It's right here. And don't think because we're nuns that we can do it, but you can't. <laughs> because uh, we're very ordinary people. And we, you know, have, have, have a history, and each of us, and uh, we were not born on lotus leaves. <laughs> so, this path is for, for ordinary people. Ordinary and extraordinary, you know, it's for everyone. You're not excluded if you're an extraordinary person, but it's for all of us. So I hope during this time you'll have a real chance to, well, to get to know the hindrances of the mind, get to know them as they are, for what they are, not constantly believe that they're you, and to develop some of the strengths of mind that can counterbalance them, counteract them. And maybe have a little taste of Nibbana. It is not impossible. And it is, this is really what we're practicing for. You know, it isn't just to, to have an e easier life or make things more manageable. Or, you know, the practice certainly has those good side effects. We can be a become a nicer person. It's kind of often the case. Get become a much nicer person after we've been practicing for a while. And uh, you know, it, it has all of those those uh, effects. But the real purpose is is for awakening. It's for coming back to our true nature is what the path is for, the practice is for. So we have some time to, to work on this and to develop some skills and some tools and put them to use and you know, whether you're here for a week or two weeks, you know, this is the time that you have to <coughs> cultivate. So don't be fooled by those hindrances. Don't let them pull you off track for too long. This is precious time, and you know when you go home, then hopefully you'll have some tools that you can use at home. That, they, that you don't leave here thinking that you can only do this in, the, in a in a retreat situation, because the practice is for every moment. The four foundations of mindfulness that I Santhachita was speaking about yesterday, they cover pretty much anything one can do at any time. So the practice is, is in everything, in every moment. It has, there's never really a time it cannot be applied. It's just for us to remember. Just have to remember and come back to the truth of the way things are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.